This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julie Magana. Episode 6, Breaking Out of Concussion Jail. Thanks for joining us. We are so excited. We now have over 10,000 downloads, which by the time you hear this, maybe it'll be closer to 15. (laughs) (laughs) But we're super excited. And thank you guys so much for listening and for supporting our podcast. Yeah. And even though we have almost 15,000, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Even though we have 10,000 downloads, we still need you to find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate us, because that's how other people find us. Sarah, I know you played field hockey growing up and in high school and in college. Did you ever have a concussion in the middle of that super dangerous sport? I I probably did, and I don't remember it. (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't play field hockey, but one time I was playing basketball in uh, high school, and I'm like a fairly aggressive player, I'm not going to lie. And I went in to grab a ball from somebody else, and we got in a fight, I mean, tussle. And uh, (laughs) I don't remember exactly what happened. What I was told is she hit me in the face with her elbow and I fell backwards. I passed out. I I don't remember very large swaths of that particular moment, but I do remember waking up to see the dreamy face of firemen coming to take me away. (laughs) (laughs) They swooped me up. I never was evaluated by a doctor there. And I came back to PE the next day and passed out again in PE. (laughs) My symptoms lasted about three to five days. It wasn't too bad. But we see this all the time, right? I mean, not a shift goes by where I don't assess a child or adolescent um, or even an adult for a closed head injury. And parents and players, athletes, they all ask these key questions of when can I get back to playing? Or some of the kids, (laughs) I shouldn't go to school, right? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, a lot of that comes from these prior guidelines that we had that suggested that probably the best thing to do was to be in a dark room and not to go to school and not to go back to sports until everything is completely gone and you're 100% better. And I have to say, I've done that for years. But there have been some new guidelines and some new research that suggests maybe we don't need to put them in that concussion jail. So today we're going to hear from an athlete who had a concussion, and we'll hear firsthand what that did to him. And then we'll talk to one of the leading researchers on concussion and return to play. And finally, we'll hear from a sports medicine expert and hear his recommendations. Today we have Cameron Wright with us. Cameron is a freshman on the men's UC Berkeley water polo team. And he is going to be joining us to tell us about his story of concussions. Cameron, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Cameron, where are you at right now? Right now, I am walking through the city streets of Berkeley. So if you hear a little background noise, that's Cameron's walking through Berkeley. Cameron has a powerful story that he's willing to share with us today. Uh, Cameron had a concussion while he was playing water polo during high school and Since he lived it, and this is bringing this problem out of the textbook and making it live for all of us, he's willing to share his story today. Cameron, tell me about your concussion. How did you get a concussion? When did this happen? Tell tell us all about it. Yeah, so um, this concussion happened before my senior year of high school. It was in the summer. I was practicing with the youth national water polo team, and um, I got elbowed right in the bridge of my nose with 
considerable force. I didn't lose consciousness, but um, I was seeing stars for a little bit. My coaches pulled me out of the pool and they administered the concussion test on me. Our team trainer did it. Basically, all she did was like take a little light and shine it in my eyes. And she asked me some questions, just testing my memory. Like she asked me about, (laughs) I don't really remember. Hopefully that's not (laughs) a bad thing. But (laughs) what they deduced was that like, it wasn't very serious, but they were just going to keep me out of the rest of practice just to be safe. That's something that I always thought was kind of curious because the symptoms from this concussion lasted for four months. And they told me at the time, it's not a serious concussion. It's a minor concussion. Cameron, let's go back to when you got hit and you said you were seeing stars. What kind of other symptoms did you feel? Mostly what I was feeling was a lot of pain in my nose. I was a little loopy. I didn't have the same symptoms that were a big problem for me moving forward. Like I didn't really have a headache at the time. And weeks and months later, like it would be a headache, light sensitivity and noise sensitivity were what really bothered me. So initially, it seemed like you had a pretty mild injury. And then what happened next? The next morning when I got in for practice, I was swimming and I just like sort of realized the light seemed especially bright in my eyes. And that was just like really bothering me. But I like told one of my teammates and he was like, you need to get out right now. And so I got out and I went and I told the trainer again, I went in that day to go see the doctor. And one of the problems was that I hadn't had a baseline test done at that point. And so like they did all that sort of testing with me, but they didn't have anything to compare it to. So like when they ran those tests on me, they didn't notice anything terribly out of the ordinary for like a high school age student. They were like, this looks pretty normal. The next day, like it all started because the sunlight was sort of giving me a headache. And I remember driving in the car and the music was playing at a normal volume and it was kind of bothering me. But again, like the ways stuff was bothering me, it didn't seem serious. Like because of my symptoms, they called it minor, but it definitely wasn't a minor effect on my life. It was a, it was a very major effect on my life. Yeah, I can totally see that. So then what did your doctors recommend? Yeah, so this was of like Wednesday that week. And they said, next Monday, we'll start you with the return progression. So I started the next Monday. By that Thursday, I was doing full competition again. And so like that was a two-week kind of training camp. So that ended and I went home back to Davis. And I remember getting home and like that weekend still kind of feeling weird, just like not feeling normal. The next week when I was going to start club practices again with my club team, I was like, you know, I'm still having these symptoms. I'm going to talk to my coach and see what he thinks. He was like, yeah, just just wait to go back. And then that's pretty much when the whole waiting out period started because it was like, well, it'll probably just be another week. It's no big deal. It'll just be another week. And then like it had been a week and I felt the same. And then like it had been a month and I felt the same. And it had been three months and I felt the same. And (laughs) so I I ended up basically missing my entire senior season of water polo. Wow, that's huge. What did it feel like to miss out and to have to sit out those times? That was definitely one of the most 
painful things I've had to go through. That team was the friends that I've been with for my whole life now. And like, we were really looking forward to our senior year. The way I see it is a really like amazing life opportunity that I missed out on and that I really wish I could have had back. Yeah, It started getting so painful to watch everyone practice and not be able to get in the water and really just like feel the water because I just, I missed that so much because that was such a big part of my everyday life. Did you notice any issues in, in other areas of your life? Yeah, definitely. It affected my schoolwork a lot. I really had trouble concentrating. It was really just the process of trying to focus on listening to all my teachers throughout the day. I couldn't get through five periods without having a bad headache. And so I talked to my doctor and he was like, well, we could probably put you on a modified school schedule. So for a couple months, I missed out on a lot. And that was pretty hard to recover from once I got back. But also you asked about other areas. Did it affect me like personally? Yeah, very much so. Like there was the emotional effect of not being able to be with my team and missing the season, but the effect it had on my body to not be able to exercise, I think was huge. There was the fact that I started getting out of shape because I wasn't allowed to exercise. That was, would drag my self-esteem down. Water polo was something that I really prided myself on. I got to a point where I was very out of shape. I knew like if I was to be thrown in a pool right at that moment, I wouldn't be able to impress anybody with what I could do. Appearance-wise, I felt a lot less attractive because I gained a lot of weight. And then I was not with my water polo friends as much. So socially, it was affecting me. In everyday things, I was a little more cynical. I was just not the same person that I was before my concussion. When you had that initial doctor visit, it sounded like everything was thought to be fairly minor. And sometimes we don't know the full extent of what the implications for the future with this concussion can be. It's challenging for doctors. But what would you have wanted to hear from those doctors on that first visit about concussion and what can happen in the future? One thing that I wish had been appreciated at the time was the psychological impact that isolating yourself in a dark room can have on a person. I personally feel like the detrimental effects that that had on me emotionally far outweighed whatever detriments could have come my way if I had been out talking to people, walking around instead of just avoiding all sort of activity. So I wish I'd been told, don't be so afraid of getting your heart rate up because I don't think that really affected me negatively that much. Whereas having no exercise at all really, really made it a lot worse than it could have been. So how did you and your doctors decide that it was okay to return to play? My symptoms had been at a certain point for a long time at like low levels, but still persisting. And it was getting near the end of the season and playoffs were just starting and I felt like it's now or never if I'm going to act. I, I just sort of like rolled the dice and I was like, I think that it's been so long since the concussion that hopefully if I get hit again, it's not too big a deal. So 
basically when I consider my concussion ending was when I just started playing again and I played the last two games of our season very much out of shape. Eventually, through training and just sort of being re-immersed back into my life, I definitely was in a much better mood. I can't remember exactly how long it took for my symptoms to go away after I started playing again, but that's when it happened. Is there anything else that you would like doctors to know about concussion? I'd like for doctors to know how emotionally impactful they can be for their patients. The delivery of the news that you might be missing this, you might be missing that, it can maybe seem non-significant to the doctor. And I think it's important to realize the sort of weight that that news carries when you tell an athlete that. The doctor is just very focused on how to make the recovery process as fast as possible. But I think that they should definitely consider just how emotionally impactful the news that they deliver is going to be. Oh, man, that's so true. Cameron, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Our next guest is Roger Zemek, who's an associate professor of pediatrics and emergency medicine at the University of Ottawa. He's the vice chair of Pediatric Emergency Research Canada, or PERC, which is like our PCARN. And he's the clinical research chair in pediatric concussion at the University of Ottawa. He was one of the authors of the paper Association Between Early Participation in Physical Activity Following Acute Concussion and Persistent Post-Concussive Symptoms in Children and Adolescents, which was published in JAMA in 2016. So, Dr. Zemek, why did you start studying concussion and return to play? I think my answer to that question is in two parts. I started studying concussion because I myself have had several concussions. And I followed the advice that I always give my trainees. You should always research things for which you have a passion. And my passion was to advance something which had impacted me growing up. And so it was something that was a natural fit when it was time to find a research topic. The other reason is I find it's always important to study things which have an important clinical need. And in our emergency department here in Ottawa, Canada, we see about 1,000 concussion visits per year. So on average, about three a day. And one universal thing I've always observed is parents ask the same two questions always. The first question is, when does my child get better? And number two, when can my child get back to the things they want, need, and love doing? And the love doing was basically the physical activity. So with the 5P study, which I published earlier, that was a study to predict the duration of concussion symptoms. So that was to answer the first part of the question, when's my child going to get better? But to get to the second question, we needed to understand what was the best evidence for getting kids back to physical activity. I've heard a, a couple of other people speak about concussion and, you know, that want to get back to the physical activity. And they describe what we were previously doing as putting people in a dark room, taking them out of their social situations as being concussion jail. And I think part of that was because people wanted to ensure that children would not get themselves hurt while recovering. So the recommendations were no physical activity until their symptoms had completely resolved and you can't advance steps till that was the case. But the problem was people would interpret this as a home jail. They'd cut off social contact. Uh, they'd cut off obviously physical activity, which to me doesn't make a lot of sense. If you look at other types of 
severe injuries such as stroke, which is a severe traumatic brain injury in which there's actually sometimes even bleeding in the brain. One of the first things that healthcare providers do is as part of the recovery, as soon as possible, they begin rehabilitation and they begin physical therapy and physical exercise within uh, days. And so if in other diseases where the brain is at risk as well, if doing physical activity actually improved physiological, psychological, and recovery, why would it be not the case for concussion? So talk to us a little bit about early participation in physical activity following acute concussion and then those persistent post-concussive symptoms that you're talking about. How did return to play play in all of that? A lot of these families would come into the emergency room. We diagnose them with concussion. We would tell patients that they needed some rest. And as you said, some patients would interpret this as a, a home jail. And I felt that we needed to do better, but it would be important, again, talking about earlier, as I mentioned, the physiological, psychological, and functional benefits of early physical rehabilitation for things such as stroke and others. What does this show for concussion? So we wanted to investigate the relationship between early resumption of physical activities um, following an acute concussion and what was the eventual risk of having persistent symptoms. Just to make sure everyone's clear, we define persistent post-concussive symptoms as the presence of three or more symptoms at one month compared to their pre-injury baseline. So people would fill out their PCSI, which is a, a validated and reliable scale, and they'd say how they feel right now and how they felt before the injury. And the reason we did that is because uh, there's been work by Grant Iverson and others that have shown, if you just ask people how you're doing right now, many people would actually be criteria to have persistent symptoms. So if I were to ask any of your listeners who had a teenager, how many of their teenagers currently are irritable, tired, or fatigued, you may have, <laughs> you may have uh, some presence of symptoms even without the uh, uh, mechanism of injury in the preceding days or weeks. So it's how you feel today compared to how do you normally feel on a typical day. So what we did was we wanted to see, first of all, how many people were doing physical activity. And we defined early physical activity as within one week. And we found that about 70% of kids were doing physical activity within one week. But interestingly enough, of those uh, you know, thousands of kids who were active, 70% of those still had symptoms, at least one or more. So that was showing me that children were not necessarily following the guidelines of the previous uh, guidelines, the Zurich guidelines from the International Concussion Conference and or the ONF guidelines that we had developed, children were still doing physical activity with the presence of symptoms. Now, some of the kids were, and many of them were doing light physical activity, but of those who were doing it, there was still a fair proportion, even almost a quarter of those who had already fully returned to competition. So we knew that the kids weren't following the recommendations, so we thought it was important to see how do they do compared one group to the other? We did this statistical analysis three ways. The first way we did it was the regular model of just straight up, you did physical activity versus you rested. And that showed in those who did physical activity, 25% had persistent symptoms at one month. For those who rested, 43% had symptoms at one month. So for every five kids who did physical activity, you could prevent one case of persistent symptoms. But we recognized this method of analysis was fraught with many potential limitations and potential biases. Namely, 
the kids who felt better probably would start it. And those kids who felt better would also be say they feel better in a month. And those kids who may have felt really bad at a week, who had may not have started, are also then maybe those kids who are still at higher risk. So we needed to come up with a way to match those kids who did physical activity to those who didn't, but were all other things similar. So we used a statistical model called propensity score matching. We calculated what was their propensity to do physical activity. So the computer picks these things, not us, but we put in all the things that might be factors and matches people based on their propensity as well as all the other baseline characteristics such that then their baseline characteristics are equal and then compares group A and B. And when we look at the rates of persistent symptoms of the physical activity group based on the propensity score matching, 29% still had persistent symptoms at one month, but the rest group, 40% did, which showed us that that difference still existed. We did a third analysis, which is called inverse probability treatment weighting, which is after it waits for your propensity to exercise. The long and short, that also was significant. So with about the identical number needed to treat as the one-to-one matching. Based on that, we can't prove causality, but we certainly can show there was a strong association between doing physical activity within a week and the lower risk of having PPCS at one month. How has studying concussion changed your practice? What do your discharge instructions look like on your shift when you're discharging three (laughs) concussive patients a day? (laughs) I had presented this study to the Berlin meeting for the fifth international concussion consensus conference. And uh, based on this and other work that had shown benefit for those with persistent symptoms, the recommendations changed. And the recommendations are to consider now early physical activity as tolerated after an initial couple days of rest. So my practice is now to encourage families to do some sort of physical activity after a couple days of rest. It should start light. And I really emphasize This is not a pass for your child to go to do their hockey tournament or football game. I want them to be doing activities that are minimal to no risk of re-injury because of the fact that I don't want them to be in a situation where they re-concuss themselves in that immediate post-concussive and may not yet fully recovered phase. Anything else you think that we should know? We are doing a randomized trial now. It's called the PED Care Study. So it's... uh, randomized controlled trial, multi-center, in which we're giving them an actigraph, which is a device that they wear on their hip. It's kind of a high-fidelity, medical-grade Fitbit. And it measures how fast they're going, how much intensity, their acceleration. And um, they wear it at night, so it actually measures how much they're moving in their sleep and are they getting good sleep or not. So it'll be really interesting to look at the findings of that study to say, Are there certain characteristics, uh, for example, patients who have uh, certain types of characteristics who benefit more or benefit less from early physical activity? And number two, what is the ideal type, timing, and duration and intensity? Well, Dr. Zemek, we'd like to thank you for all the work that you are doing on this topic. It impacts what we do in the ED every day, and it's also something that I care about as a parent. So thanks so much for taking the time today to share with us. And for our listeners, if you want to dive a little deeper into this topic, listen to the full interview with Dr. Zemek. You can find the link in our show notes. Our expert today is Dr. Jeremiah Ray. 
He's the head team physician for intercollegiate athletics at UC Davis, and Jeremiah is truly an expert. He trained and practiced as an emergency physician, then completed fellowships in both ultrasound and sports medicine. So thanks for being with us today, Jeremiah. Happy to be here. So, Jeremiah, we've had a chance to talk with Cameron, who experienced a concussion himself, and then we talked with Dr. Zemek, who talked about return-to-play precautions from his recently published article. We'd love to hear from your standpoint now, as both an ED provider and as a sports medicine doc for a college team, how do you approach concussions? Let's talk about the acute setting first. Right. So initially, what I need to do is I have to figure out if they have a concussion or not. And so that's becoming easier as more and more people are understanding the importance of concussions and repeat concussions. I think a lot of people saw the Will Smith movie and (laughs) a lot of parents are moving their children out of aggressive contact sports. And so there's a good awareness about that. And actually in the state of California, there's legislation that mandates anybody at a sporting event, whether it's a parent, a referee, a yard keeper, or a coach, or another player, if there's any big impact or concern for concussion, that athlete is removed from sport for the day. Wow. It's pretty phenomenal. And that has really translated into what I see in the college experience. A lot of athletes are pulling themselves out. There is still a challenge when people try and hide the symptoms of a concussion or if they don't actually know if they're concussed. So what I do If someone loses consciousness, they're out of the event for the day. They do not return to sport that day because if you have enough force going to the reticulating and activating system, uh, you you have a concussion. It gets trickier when things are not as clear. So someone has a big hit in a football line of scrimmage, you have to go out and see how they're feeling. So if they look dazed, if they look bewildered, if they look confused, I use that. I pull them out for sure. But when they're looking okay initially, it gets more and more challenging. And so we have a couple of tools that we use. One of them is called the VOMS, the Vestibular Ocular Motor Screening Tool. And you basically have a patient fix their eyes on a fixed object and shake their head back and forth for about 15, 20 seconds. And if it makes them feel dizzy, symptomatic, or kind of uncomfortable, then that's a positive sign that they do. Yeah, you're doing it right now. (laughs) And. And uh, that's a positive sign that they have symptoms or signs of a concussion. I pull them out from that. We also, whenever there's concern, we use a tool called the SCAT. It stands for the uh, Sideline Concussion Assessment Tool. It's currently in its fifth rendition, so we call it the SCAT-5. And it incorporates a whole bunch of different tools. It does balance, memory, delayed recall, uh, saying the months backwards. And it also just goes through a symptom severity check box as well, which is really, really helpful. And so it goes through all the common symptoms of a concussion. And if they have anything that's above their baseline, we pull them from activity for that day. That's how we assess it in the acute setting. So you have everybody's baseline before they start then? We do. So at UC Davis and most Division One, and I think probably D2 and D3 schools will do baseline testing of some degree, whether it's using the SCAT-5 tool, whether it's using the NFL concussion tool, or using um, impact testing, which is a computer-based testing. You'll see every institution using their own variations of these tools. But we use IMPACT, which is a computer neurocognitive test, as well as the SCAT-5 test. And we actually have a pediatric version of SCAT as well. Yes. um, Which I've used myself in the emergency department. It's a little bit harder because it's fairly (laughs) time-consuming. It is, especially as an emergency medicine provider. I mean, to run through that entire form, it's probably 10 minutes on the fast side closer to 15 minutes when you're trying to explain everything and familiarize yourself with the testing. So how do you evaluate acute concussion in the emergency department? So if you Google SCAT-5, 
There's just a PDF. Uh, the most recent rendition was just published in April of 2017, and it's a free PDF through the British Medical Journal Sports Medicine, and you can just print it. And it's, um, I think, four pages. I hand it to the parents, I hand it to the family, I hand it to the patient, and I just go through it with them. And most importantly, what I do is I show them the symptom severity checklist, and I say, these symptoms that you have right now are going to evolve over the next 24 hours. Tomorrow, you will very much expect to have these symptoms worsen, and then they usually peak right around the 24 to 48 hour mark and then begin their decline. Now, when you look at NC2A data on athletes who are concussed, they have a sports-related concussion, 90% of them are asymptomatic by day 7 or day 10. And so the majority of people will have symptoms for over a week. And if 90% are asymptomatic by day 10, and that's their average, that means some people are better in three or four days which means some people are better in two or three weeks. And that's all standard, just kind of under your Gaussian distribution of how people resolve their concussion. I'll tell you my personal experience in the college setting, people are right around that mark. So it's kind of 10 days is the mid, and that means you have people that are 30 days, people that are three days. Now, is the SCAT-5 helpful in the emergency department when you don't have that baseline? We know that when we have baseline testing, it increases your sensitivity of picking up a concussion. So when you can compare it back to a baseline, that's really, really helpful because there are people who go through life with a little bit of head pressure, a little bit of fogginess, a little bit of confusion, which is unfortunate. (laughs) Me before tea in the morning. I know, right? So it's nice to have a baseline, but it's not necessary. And so if someone has just wildly huge symptom scores, we know that they're probably suffering from a concussion in the right clinical context. And I give it to them so that they aren't alarmed by the symptoms they feel. Yeah, when I've done it in the past, Sarah, I felt like if nothing else, it educates the parents and it opens up that discussion about the symptoms to expect. And it's kind of like seeing it in writing. And the one that I printed out had the CDC little logo at the top. And I feel like it kind of legitimizes the process as well. It's not just me talking about this. It's this is the CDC's approach. Right. NC2A has a lot of free printable PDFs, one and two pages as well for coaches, for parents, for players. And it's uh, it's very understandable and it makes the whole process a lot more, uh, I guess, manageable, less fearful. Yeah, the CDC has a really great website as well that has some great articles for uh, providers and it has handout for parents and for the kids themselves, the athletes themselves as well. So then you also mentioned that there's sort of a difference in diagnosing concussion in the acute setting versus maybe the subacute. What did you mean by that? When I have concern for a concussion in an athlete and my concern is high enough, I pull them from sport. And what I what I say to them is that you have concern for a concussion, but I don't mark them with the stamp of concussion just yet. Mm-hmm. And then the evaluation the following day in 24 hours is so crucial. And so that's what our athletic training staff, our coaches, our strength coaches, and I really look for is how they're feeling the next day. Because if someone on the line of scrimmage tackles really hard or goes in for a big hit and they are adamant they're fine, they pass all your tests, and you're still just really worried about it, the next day will really be your answer. Is that true for somebody who comes in with a non-sports-related concussion as well? Like if they came in with a bonk and the parents are like, I'm concerned for concussion, but they're totally well, how do you approach that? I would do the exact same thing. I would say right now, it doesn't look like they have all the signs and symptoms of a concussion, but given the mechanism, it's totally possible. You print out that PDF and then have them do the symptom severity score from the uh, British Medical Journal. And then tomorrow they might have a concussion. 
So let's say they come in with symptoms that day right after the the impact, and then you check them again in 24 hours, and now they're completely symptom-free. How do you approach that? So if they're symptom-free in 48 hours after the traumatic event, based on the tools that we use today and based on our current understanding of it, we would probably say that they do not have a concussion. So let's get into a little bit more about the return to play. So what are you telling these athletes in terms of when they can go back or what they should be doing while they're waiting to go back? That's a really good question. We used to isolate these athletes, put them in a dark corner, remove them from all cognitive and physical activity. And that was probably too extreme. And the pendulum is beginning to swing in the other direction. And at some point, we'll probably find the sweet spot. Right now, what we're doing based on two human studies. So one was 2008 study out of uh, New Jersey or New York. Majerzik was the lead author on that one, I think. That one showed that high school students who did physical activity as a part of the recovery process had better long-term outcomes. And then the second study was um, the one that you just talked about was a 2016 study out of Ontario, where they looked at adolescents and their return to play and the activity group, the group that was doing physical activity as a part of their recovery process, had nearly half uh, the incidence of post-concussive syndrome. We've taken a lot of that data and we incorporate early cycling as part of our uh, recovery process. And so what we do is when the athlete feels well enough and eager to hop on a stationary bike, we allow them to cycle for about 30 or 40 minutes every day. And what we're seeing is that a lot of a lot of these athletes are feeling pretty darn good pretty darn quickly. And so that's our current model. As far as our return to learn model, we educate them on scenarios where they could become increasingly symptomatic. So anything where there are a lot of bright lights, a lot of, a lot of noises, a lot of focus that is required, and we empower them to remove themselves from any situation, whether it's a team meeting, a lecture, or uh, any homework assignment. And so we work really closely with our academic administration, and we protect the athletes. When they feel ready and they feel excited to learn again and feel that reading wouldn't give them any symptoms, we do a 24-hour trial of learning is what we call it. And if they feel really good with that, then we release them back to class. And that's on average about 10 days, maybe two weeks. And so we run into a lot of problems because if people are getting concussed around midterms or finals, it gets really tricky in the college setting. But so far, we've had beautiful support of our administration. Everyone understands concussions are real and they want these athletes to heal up properly. How can we apply this in the emergency room then? What do you tell parents or what would you recommend that people tell parents or tell young athletes in terms of um, what they can do to try to come back slowly or what, what kind of signs they should be looking for? And how long should they expect their symptoms to go on before there's, they really need to think oh, maybe there's something more going on or there's something wrong? I would encourage prompt follow-up with their primary care provider. This really should be managed by someone who is familiar with the patient and has immediate access to follow-up with the patient. And what I'll counsel the families on is that the symptoms will likely persist for about 10 days. That's kind of the average, and it can go longer. If symptoms are going on beyond 28 days, at that point, it's really important to see a provider probably get a referral to a neuropsych evaluation and maybe even some vestibular rehab, so physical therapy for vestibular ocular rehab as well to make the symptoms feel better. What are your recommendations for return to play for those who don't have the advantage of an athletic trainer or a stationary bike? Everything is a graded return. So all of your learning, all of your physical activity will be gradual over time with a lot of 
stopping and reflecting on how you're feeling. And so usually what I will tell people is when you feel totally normal, completely asymptomatic, then go ahead and do some light jogging. And then that's all you're going to do for that day and see how you're feeling afterwards. And if you feel great afterwards, then then the next day you can do some sprint work, you can do some weightlifting and then stop, see how you feel. And if you feel great after that, then the next day you can go on to maybe non-contact play. And if you feel great after that, then you can kind of feel safe and comfortable going on to full play after that. So you're a little more cautious with your patients in the ED who you can't follow up. Uh, If I was someone who I wouldn't see again, I'd probably say, wait until you're asymptomatic before resuming physical activity. But if they have really good follow-up with a primary care provider or maybe a physical therapist, that's something where you might allow them to, to do a little bit of activity. When I discharge someone, I usually say, like, when you are feeling ready, when you're feeling strong enough, then go ahead and start with some light exercise, maybe going for a walk around the block and then jogging. And my phrase that I always say is, if it hurts, don't do it. Like if it, meaning that like brings back those symptoms that you're having, then you're probably not ready for that step yet. Is that too aggressive? Is that not aggressive enough? No, that's perfect. That's actually the exact phrase that I use. If it feels good, do it. If it hurts, don't do it. And I'll even extend that to uh, another phrase that I stole from Kim Harmon at University of Washington. I, I use the next morning rule. So if you're more symptomatic the next morning, then you went too far. Mm. Oh, that's a good point. I like that. So in terms of the concern for sort of the second hit phenomenon, it sounds like it's really important for people to be completely asymptomatic before they go back into a full contact sport. Second impact syndrome is probably the most contentious component of concussion. I don't know if you guys got into that previously. No, we haven't talked about it. Let's get into it. (laughs) So so the lead author for the Berlin Consensus Statement and concussion, sports concussion researcher for probably 20 or 30 years now is Paul McCrory out of Australia. And he has a lot of literature saying, stop calling it second impact syndrome. Second impact syndrome isn't a real entity. And of course, there are equally loud voices on the other end of the spectrum saying, what are you talking about? Yes, it is. When you look at the data and the literature out there, we have a lot of people who have catastrophic head injuries, and a lot of them will actually be small subdurals that then expand. When you look at reviews out of, I think Tokyo had a a review of 17 autopsy-confirmed cases of quote-unquote second impact syndrome, all of them but one had intracranial hemorrhage as a part of that. And so Paul McCrory is saying that you don't want to call head bleed, second impact syndrome, because that's a head bleed. We do know that in the pediatric population, you can have a catastrophic cerebral edema episode, but it doesn't necessarily need to be after the second hit. So there are plenty of instances where hitting your head for the first time is where you're going to have the dysregulation of blood flow to your brain and you can have catastrophic edema. And Paul McCroy says that it's any hit, not necessarily the second hit. Let's delineate second impact syndrome, and post-concussive syndrome. Paul McCrory has a big problem with the term second impact syndrome because the definition is that you have a hit that kind of primes the brain to this uh, autonomic dysregulation of blood flow in the absence of a structural pathology like a subdural hematoma. Post-concussive syndrome is when you have the symptoms of a concussion. So when you look at your SCAT-5 tool and you have those 22 items, head pressure, headache, fogginess, all those things. When you have those symptoms for a prolonged period of time, most people define it as 28 days. 
We do know that if you get multiple hits during your recovery process, your chances of having post-concussive syndrome increase and increase and increase. So that's why we care about pulling people from play if they do have a concussion. It's not so much that we're worried about the catastrophic cerebral edema and death, because that's probably not all that accurate. But we certainly are concerned about the athlete's long-term well-being and making sure that they have a full recovery from their concussion. Well, is there anything else you think that we should know about concussions and return to play? We do know a couple of special populations where recovery is going to be prolonged. And so one is young age. And I define young age as kind of pubescence. So anybody who's prepubescent, that's very young, and they're going to be at a high risk for having symptoms that last for a while. And I even say 18, 19 is still pretty young. So that's one risk factor for prolonged symptoms and more severe symptoms. A few other ones that I talk about are history of migraine headaches or motion sickness, having multiple prior concussions, having any learning disability, ADHD, dyslexia, and then also having history of anxiety or depression are the other risk factors that are associated with more severe concussions and longer concussion symptoms. The final point I want to make is sleep. It looks as though that high-quality nighttime sleep seems to be really restorative, and people will feel tired and want to do a lot of daytime napping, and I try and discourage that. I say, stay awake, sleep at night. Well, Jeremiah, thank you so much for being here today. This has been really informative for me. Yeah, me too. And I think I have a lot that I can uh, take into the ER and actually use when I have these patients coming in. So I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. Pulse check. Both Jeremiah Ray and Cameron mentioned that it's hard to make the diagnosis of concussion right off the bat. When we see a patient with a head injury, we need to set up that things could get worse before they get better, and we just need time to determine the severity and when they can return to play. On average, it takes 7 to 10 days for symptoms to go away. For some people, it may be shorter, and for some, like Cameron, the symptoms may last for months. There are several great resources for evaluating concussion severity. I plan on writing a dot phrase to put into my notes with the SCAT-5 so I can make it easier for me next time. Roger Zemeck's research suggests that kids who start mild aerobic exercise early, even though they may still have some symptoms, may actually get better faster. It's important to get these athletes out of the concussion jail and back to their normal lives. True. Jeremiah agrees that with this early return to play approach, but he points out that a lot of our patients may overdo it. So we need to be cautious with them, especially if they don't have great follow-up. And we in the ED are not going to be the ones who clear them to return to full competition. We just don't know in that moment what the next day or two will look like. I've changed my discharge instructions to say, basically, if it hurts, don't do it. Go slow, but don't put yourself in concussion jail. Thanks again for listening. For links to the resources in this episode, check out our website, ucdavisem.com. Let's continue this discussion on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Impulse Podcast. And please, please help us get the word out about our podcast by subscribing and rating us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, with any medical issues, if you're not a provider, please see your own doctor for health advice. Thank you so much to OM Audio Productions for making this challenging recording sound the best it could. <laughs> and thank you to our department for making all of this possible. We have another conference coming up. This one is the Emergency Medicine Hot Topics 2018 in Maui, Hawaii. I'm super excited. I'm going to be hanging out on the beach and with a lot of you guys, November 6th through 10. 
You can find the link to the website where you can register and find out more about this conference in our resources. See you next time.